So my name's Beth, and today I'm going to be reading to you from John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. And I'd like you just to invite you to really imagine being there early that first Easter morning, going to the tomb, and just being there, you know, standing in Mary's shoes as she becomes the first person to encounter the risen Jesus. But first I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you that death could not hold you. We thank you you've given us new life here and forevermore for the many different ways that so many of us here can testify that you have changed us, made us into new creations. I pray that we also may recognize you when you call us by name. John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. How are we doing? Excellent. Glad to hear. It's wonderful to have so many of you here this morning and visitors as well. Welcome. It is great to have you here to celebrate Easter with us. Uh, As Janet mentioned earlier, as a church, we've been working through the Gospel of John for some time, and we have been sort of building up towards this moment. And we're going to see here in this passage how some of the stuff that Jesus has been teaching all the way through the Gospel has come to fruition and a culmination in this moment. Uh, Before we get to that, though, I want to tell you just a a, a quick little story, though, to help set up uh, one of the main things that I think that comes from this passage. Uh, So I pulled out some photos uh, from our wedding this morning. 
Uh, don't worry, sweetheart, you're not in them. It's okay. It's okay. My, didn't, didn't tell my wife, so I thought I'd better not, you know, just include that in there. Anyway, so this is me on our wedding day. I know what you're thinking. I look exactly the same. It's fine. Now, uh, so that's me, and the guy there on, on my left, on the right, on the picture, is uh, Malizzi, and Malizzi was my best, my best man. Now, Malizzi uh, is from Botswana. It's a, a small African nation, sort of just near South Africa in Zimbabwe. Uh, and he and I met at university, and it quickly became apparent to everyone that, that we were so alike uh, that they continually called us the wrong names. So... He, no, so he actually, he would tell people uh, that his name was Chris because he didn't think they could pronounce Malizzi, which I still tease him about. Uh, but he, they, they would call me Chris and they would call him James all the time. And so we started calling each other my twin, right? That was just how we, we did things. My twin, what's up? Uh, and I, a few years back, they came and visited us uh, down in, in Gosford, uh, Malizzi and his wife and his little girl. And we were explaining this to my kids, that, that we were twins, that we were brothers, and one of the boys uh, looked at us, and none of the boys want to own up that this was them, and to be honest, it's a little fuzzy in my memory which one of them was, but they said, clearly, clearly they're looking at us like, you guys cannot be brothers. And Malizzi, being the cheeky man that he is, he's like, why not? And, and they're like, because you don't look the same. There's you're different colors. And he's like, ah, if you cut us, do we not bleed the same red blood? We are the same. And to my son struggling to process the information, he was like, I, that kind of makes sense, and yet, still. But it was fun, because there's real truth in this. We obviously uh, were different, and yet we were profoundly the same. And yet, at the same time, profoundly different. And we're going to see at the end of this gospel that Jesus makes a statement to Mary that shows a profound difference between her and him, and yet a profound sameness that flows forth from the fact that he has risen from the dead. And so we're going to work towards that as we work through the story now and build up to that. So we saw last, uh, on Friday, on Good Friday, that Jesus has been laid in the tomb. Death has come to him. It's all been part of his plan There was no mistaking the fact that this was what God, the Father, and God, the Son, had intended from the very beginning. This was the reason he had come into this world. But now he's been laid in the tomb, and death hangs over the scene. And now we jump forward to the first day of the week. So in the Jewish calendar, that was the Sunday. And it says that early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, so basically as soon as possible after the Sabbath. So Saturday was the Jewish day of rest. There was all sorts of rules and boundaries around what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. But as soon as the first day of the week, the new day comes, Mary Magdalene goes out towards the tomb. Now, Mary has definitely been mentioned uh, as one of the women who witnessed the death of Jesus in the previous chapter. It's possible that Mary Magdalene is the same Mary of Bethany that we see in John chapter 11. Nobody's really sure about this. But Mary is this figure who we are going to have this profound opportunity to see the story through her eyes now. And what she sees when she gets to the tomb is that the stone has been removed from the entrance. 
And you can imagine as somebody who cared deeply about Jesus, who had been following him, who had seen his death, this was very disturbing news. She had come to honor the body. She'd come to make sure that it had been treated correctly. We saw that Joseph and Nicodemus had taken care of the body and gone through all the Jewish burial rites, but it was done pretty quickly in order to get it done in time for the Sabbath. And so Mary and in the other Gospels we read that a couple of other women came with her to make sure that Jesus' body was being given the respect that she felt like it deserved. But now she finds the tomb empty. And so it says that she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. She, she, there was an urgency to this moment. This was big news. The fact that this, the tomb was empty was rather distressing, but not because she immediately thought that something miraculous has happened. No, no. Her assumption is that they have taken the Lord out of the tomb And like I said, in the other Gospels, we know that there are some other women there with her, and we don't know where they have put him. Her assumption in this moment, her assumption, I'll just project until we can, there we go. Her assumption in that moment was that either the Romans or maybe the Jewish leaders have stolen the body from the tomb. And so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, and this is one of my favorite parts in all of Scripture, Because it says, both were running. Again, we can see the urgency and the importance of this moment. But the other disciple, who we think is John, the gospel author, okay, he just wants us all to know that he won this foot race. All right? And what's great is that you just see in a minute, he mentions it twice. All right? He specifically says twice, the other disciple, all right, who we're pretty sure was him, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And as he got there, It says that he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. So they're running, running, running. John gets there first. He looks into the tomb, but he doesn't go in immediately. He just simply sees that there's no body there, but just cloths of linen lying where the body should be. Peter, though, comes along behind him, and perhaps to make up for the fact that he'd gotten beaten in the foot race, now says, I'm going in front of the tomb first. And straight behind him went into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So, this, you know, so we have this, the place where the body was laying, with these, these cloths of linen which Joseph and Nicodemus had wrapped around the body just a couple of days earlier. And now everything is lying just where it should be, except there's no body there. Next it says, finally, except actually that word finally isn't really there in the Greek. That's something the NIV's done, so let's just leave that out for now. It says, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, I told you, you mentioned it twice, also went inside... And then it says, he saw and believed. But the question is, at this moment, what did he believe? Because we know that at this point in time, he hasn't seen the risen Lord. And indeed, we get this little footnote saying, at this point, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So if they don't believe that he's risen from the dead, dead necessarily, or at least they're not sure exactly what's happening, what is it that he believes? And I think that what he has faith in here is that Jesus is going to be with the Father. Because a few chapters earlier, 
at the, the Passover meal that they shared together, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus said, you heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does, you will believe. I think that John, in light of this conversation, upon seeing the body is gone, has assumed that on some level, Jesus is going to be with God the Father. Something special has happened, but he might not be quite thinking yet in terms of a physical resurrection of Jesus. And I think that also explains why the disciples don't necessarily hang around to try and find out anything else, because it says next, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. All right? Not running. They weren't running back with urgent news now. That everything sort of slowed down, right? They were running, 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 get to the tomb, find out what's going on. No body, linen cloths lying where it is. And now we're just going to go back. That something amazing has happened. John has seen something and now has been moved to some sort of faith that, that he believes possibly that God has gone back to the Father. But it was slowed down. And we're told that Mary is still there and stood outside the tomb crying. Mary has not moved on. John has looked inside the tomb, presumably seen the same thing that Peter has seen, seen the linen cloths, and has been moved to faith, and now they're going back seemingly reflectful, you would think. But Mary has not moved on. Mary has not been stirred to faith yet. She is still grieving and concerned about what's happened to the body of Jesus. And as she weeps, she bends over to look in the tomb in much the same way that Peter does, but she sees something very different now. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now, in the other gospel accounts, we're actually told that Mary and the other women that are at the tomb have already seen these angels. John leaves out that detail And I think that explains why Mary is maybe not completely shocked and feared in this moment, which is people's normal reaction when they see an angel. She's actually kind of -of matter-of-fact about this. She looks in, sees this angel. They ask her the question, woman, why are you crying? And why are you upset? Which is kind of neat, right? Because it's like, I mean, there's no need to be sad now. There's a presumption here about what's already taken place. But she is still grieving. She says, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. She's still grieving, trying to figure out what has happened and what has taken place. And as she says this, she turns around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, this is a weird one. This happens a few times with the resurrected body of Christ. There's a few people that see him and don't immediately recognize him. We're not given a full explanation in scripture as to why that is. We're not told if his resurrection body is a little bit different or if there's some sort of spiritual blindness. We're not sure. But the fact that it happens multiple times and yet all these people come to then recognize that it indeed is Jesus suggests that, you know, there's no doubt that it was him in the fact that she didn't recognize him at first, but simply that something's going on where perhaps the faith element 
needs to be present for her to see him for who he truly is. And now he asks her the same questions that the angels did. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Again, feels like a cheeky question. He knows the answer. And thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And this little phrase is such an interesting one uh, if you know your Bible. Because this idea of the gardener has actually been an important one at a couple of different points in Scripture. I'm not going to go through all of it. I'm just going to give you two. But there's two things here. First is, is that when you go back to the very, very beginning, to the opening chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis, when Adam was created, the very first man, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The very first man was given the job of gardening, and there's this whole theme in Scripture of where Jesus is the new Adam. He has come to do what the first Adam couldn't do. The first Adam was meant to lead this righteous life of worship for God and living for him, but he sins and fails at that, and now Jesus, the new Adam, has come, and he lives the perfect life that the first Adam could not do. And so the idea that Mary in this moment mistakes him for the gardener seems to be a little bit nod back to that idea of who that first man was meant to be. And similarly, just a couple of chapters earlier again, Jesus has said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener, which also seems to hint at this idea that maybe Mary, in seeing Jesus here now, recognizes something of the divine in him, even still without recognizing who he is in full yet. But, you know, I kind of like what Mary does here. Even though she's distressed, and even though if this person, if the gardener has taken the body, if he's done this, you would think that she might be furious or mad with him. But in her concern for Jesus, all she wants to do is try and get to the body. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. That's her. She's not even looking for justice or moving in anger towards the gardener for what he might have done here. She simply wants to get to the body of Jesus and take care of it. Even if she doesn't totally understand what's going on, it's her love for Jesus and her affection for him that's driving him. And it's at this point that Jesus said to her, Mary. And it reminds me in this moment when she hears her name and she turns towards him and cries out, Rabboni, which means teacher, that again, earlier in the Gospel of John, John had said that the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When Mary here hears the voice of the gatekeeper of the good shepherd, that is the moment where she recognizes Jesus for who he truly is and turns towards him and cries out, Rabboni, my teacher, the one I've been following, the one I know, the one I trust in. And Jesus, as he so often does, has a response here that we might not expect him to have. You might expect hugs, you might expect rejoicing and celebration and all that sort of stuff, 
But as much as this is good news and Jesus wants this good news proclaimed, now is not that moment of, of clinging and holding on to because now that he has arisen, there is work to do. And so he says to her, do not hold on to me. Like, so what he means is don't, don't cling to me. In the other Gospels, again, we get this picture of, of Mary bowing down, sort of grabbing hold of his, his feet, that sort of idea. He's saying, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. He's telling her there is more to come. You are going to cling to me. You are going to hold on to me with all that you have. But it's not going to be physically, but rather you're going to have a trust in me that is going to grow as I ascend to go to be with the Father. Instead, he says, go to my brothers and tell them I am ascended. And by brothers here, he means his disciples, not his actual physical brothers. And tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And this is really the statement that we're going to zero in on here in just a second. So I'm just going to note it for now and then we're going to come back to it. But just note how he says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. But he does not say it in terms of our Father and our God. Same, same, but different. We'll come back to that in a sec. And so Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now we're going to see what happens next when the disciples hear this news about having Mary having seen the Lord and all that that means. But like I said, what I really want us to focus on here is this idea of, of same, same, but different in the way that Jesus speaks to Mary when he says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Because throughout all of John's Gospel, and honestly, this happens so frequently that I can't even show you all the references. We'd be here till way past lunch, okay? So you're welcome. Um, But I'm going to show you some so that you get the idea and you see the theme of what's actually been building up here, okay? So going back to John chapter 1, John says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the theme that we're going to build on. There is something special about Jesus' relationship with the Father that nobody else has. Right? This is the idea. You're going to see this build and build and build. So here we see the one and only Son who came from the Father. That's how John speaks about Jesus. Just a few verses later, it says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. There is the one and only Son. No one has seen the Father except for the Son, the one who exists in the closest relationship with him. This is the very thing that is going to lead to the Jewish and religious leaders of Jesus' time seeking to put Jesus to death. It's the special relationship that he claims to have with God. That's why he has been put to death. That's why he was on the cross. It's because of this claim. So in chapter 5, after Jesus has performed his first big public miracle down in Jerusalem, he said, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath because he healed to do it on the day of rest, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
If you're not too familiar with, with church stuff and with the Bible and all that sort of stuff, one of the ideas that you'll hear out there is that Jesus was a really good moral teacher, that he was all about practicing tolerance, and that uh, he just wanted to love people, and that he was just a really kind guy, and the church is this big evil institution that cares about you know, owning the truth and all that sort of stuff. But Jesus was just this you know, guy that had some really great ideas about love, and that's a lie. Jesus made exclusive claims about who he was and how to know God through him all the time. He did not claim to just to be a great moral teacher. He never said, I'm just a guy with some good ideas. What he said about himself was, I've come from God, I am God's son, and I am equal to him. And this is something that the Jewish leaders of his time that spoke his language, that understood his references, knew him to be doing, and that's what infuriated them so much because they did not believe, and this is what they sought to put him to death for. And he hammered them on this multiple times, the fact that he knew God and they did not. So in John 8 we read, he says, "'You do not know me or my Father.'" If you knew me, you would know my Father also. It's through me that you know God our Father. Just a few verses later, he says again, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Again and again and again, I have this special relationship with God. You might claim to know him, but you don't know me, so therefore you do not know him. Friends, I don't know where you're coming from this morning if you're visiting. We're so glad to have you here. But if you have any conception that you know God or you know how this world works or that you think that you've got it all figured out, if you don't know Jesus, then what Jesus would say to you is, you're wrong. That if you don't know me, you can't know those things truly. You might know some things in part. You might have some understanding about how the world works. There's lots we can learn through science and observing the world and through history and through philosophy and logic. There's all sorts of things that we can know, but none of that is going to be a right understanding of this world unless you know and trust in Jesus. That's the claim that he's making. And because he knows that's so offensive, because he knows that's so ridiculous, what he's been pointing to this entire time is his death and resurrection to say, that's how you know that I'm telling the truth. He says multiple times, you're not going to be able to get this until I die and rise again because he understands the audacity of the claim. He understands that to these guys in his time, these Jewish leaders who thought they knew God, the idea that a mere person like himself could be God was so ridiculous that something incredible needed to happen for them to be able to grasp this truth. And that's what the death and resurrection was designed to do. Yes, in dying, he pays the price for our sins. Yes, in rising from the dead, he defeats death. But absolutely at the same time, he's saying with a big neon flashing sign, I told you so. I am who I said that I am. And so now that he's come back from the dead and he's making these claims about his special relationship with the Father, we need to listen again and hear the truth that's in it. He'd been preparing his disciples for this in John chapter 14, again, just a a few short hours before his arrest and, and death. He said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. 
If you want to know the Father, if you too want to have a special relationship with him, if you want us to be at home together, it's going to be through obeying my teaching. And as we've talked about lots of times in the series, what that looks like is believing and trusting in Jesus. And so now, when Jesus says to Mary, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God, he's now saying, it's possible for you too to know the Father. All the way through, what he's been saying to all the Jewish leaders, to all the religious leaders and experts and all that sort of stuff, you don't know my Father. Now he says to Mary, my Father and your Father. Now it's different. Jesus is the Son of God in a way that we will never be. Jesus has lived by the Father's side in all eternity past. Jesus existed outside this world and came into human form and became like one of us. He indeed has a closeness and relationship with the Father that we will never have. And yet at the same time, if we believe and trust in him, his promise to us is that now you will be able to say with full authenticity and truth, my Father and my God, the same as Jesus does. That is the miracle of Resurrection Sunday. That's why Easter is such a big deal. It's because through his death and through his resurrection, it's now possible for every single one of us to also know God, our Father. Because this is a truth that exists whether you believe it or not. Jesus made the world and everything in it. All things have been made through him and for him and are to him. And whether you believe it or not, that is true. But what Jesus says is, is that now all people, despite our sins, despite our lack of faith in Jesus, if we come to him and believe in him, can now say along with Jesus, my God and my Father. This is the whole point of John's gospel. It's been the whole thing that he's been working towards through the entire way through. Jesus is taught, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Friends, if you're visiting here with us, this is the hope of the gospel to you, that you too would believe and receive eternal life and be with Jesus on the last day. And my, 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 I beg you, to take this idea seriously. Maybe you don't come to church that much. Mainly, maybe this is the one time all year where you hear a message like this. All I'm asking is that you would check this out, that you, that you would take such an audacious claim seriously. Because Jesus went to his death and defeated death in order to try to say to you, this is true. And the worst thing that you could do is to hear a message like this and then walk out and simply ignore it and say, oh, well, that, you know, that was an interesting little idea, wasn't it? No, 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 this is something you have to take seriously. This is something that people have been taking seriously for 2,000 years. This is something that, despite every effort of the world around us to kill Christianity and declare it dead a hundred times over, this is the reason that it perseveres. It's because of the centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the good news that will not die because our Savior defeated death and rose again. And so... Brothers and sisters, all those who do have faith, I hope that you are excited to celebrate today. 
I hope that you have this good news in you and that whatever is happening in your world right now, you would not forget this truth. This is the reason that we can have hope in the midst of any circumstance that we are facing. Easter time, you get together with family and sometimes that can just remind you about how miserable and bad life can be. Whoever didn't just look at each other then, that's okay, you guys can sort it out later, it's fine. So sometimes at Easter, you know, we are reminded of, of the painful stuff in our life. And this is the thing. That's not a bad thing because sometimes it's the pain in our life that causes us to look again afresh at the pain that Jesus endured and the suffering that he went through in order to make it possible for us to have eternal life. So I'm going to pray for two things now. I'm going to pray for all those here who don't yet believe in Jesus. Really nicely, I'm going to pray for you whether you like it or not. Because I believe it's true, and so do a whole bunch of other people here, and so probably does the person who brought you along. It is our desperate hope that you would hear this message and take it seriously. So I'm going to pray that you would do that and that you might come to faith. And I'm also going to pray for all of us here who know the Lord Jesus, that whatever we're enduring, whatever we're going through, that on this day of all days, we might remember that whatever pain and difficulty we endure in this world, it is nothing compared to the hope that we have in Christ and the eternal life that he gives to all who believe and trust in him. Won't you join me as we pray? Father God, thank you so much that you sent your son into this world. Thank you that he did what the first Adam could not, that he lived a perfect, sinless life. Thank you, Lord, that as he proclaimed your word to us and your truth, that he spoke real and true things that enable us to believe in you. Thank you that through his death and resurrection, he has shown us the reality of who he is. Thank you that we can now know you through his sacrifice and through faith in him. We pray, Father, for all those here who do not yet know you, and we pray, Father, that they would take this, this good news seriously. That, Father, they might hear this gospel and that they might be struck by the audacity of this claim and that they would not ignore it, but that they would take it seriously. They'd look at the history of it. They'd look at what, what Jesus is actually saying about himself. They would consider again the truth of his death and his resurrection and what that would mean if it is true. And that, Father, that as they do this, you might bring them to faith in you. And we pray, Father, for all of us brothers and sisters in Christ here. We rejoice, Father, that now we are truly brothers and sisters with Christ also because we can claim with him that God is our Father, that we've been adopted into his family. And whatever pain and difficulty we might endure in this world, we know that we have that eternal hope of life with you forever and ever. And so as we sing praises to you now, may we do it with full hearts, in love with you, knowing the profound depth of all that you've accomplished through your death and resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.